This series deals with themes of violence, loss of life, grief, trauma, and mental health. The content may not be suitable for younger listeners. Kia ora, I'm Alex Mason. And I'm Mitchell Alexander. Welcome to Season 1 of Unclassified, a series where we bring you first-hand tales from those who served during New Zealand's 20-year deployment to Afghanistan. Today, we're joined by Major General John Boswell to talk about the overall contribution of the New Zealand Army to Afghanistan, the impact of losing a soldier on operations, and leadership in a crisis. In the wake of the 9-11 terror attacks, American-led forces swept the Taliban from power in Afghanistan. The first rotation of the New Zealand Provincial Reconstruction Team deployed to the Central Asian country in 2003 to help with the rebuild, a commitment that lasted more than two decades. In April 2010, Major General John Boswell deployed as the Senior National Officer and Commanding Officer of the New Zealand Provincial Reconstruction Team, known as CRIB-16. During that deployment, Lieutenant Tim O'Donnell was killed in action, the first Kiwi combat fatality in Afghanistan. Major General Boswell went on to receive the Distinguished Service Decoration in recognition of his service in Afghanistan and was appointed Chief of the New Zealand Army in September 2018. Thank you for joining us, John. Can you take us back to 2010 and the moment when you learned that a Kiwi soldier had been killed in an ambush in Bamiyan province? Talk us through what happened. So it was late afternoon on the uh, on the 3rd of August. I was in the gym at the time. I heard a uh, escalation of announcements on the PR system that we had at the base. The call went out for the commander of the uh, quick response force, the call went out for um, medical advice and for some US military experts that we had located at the base. And then um, sometime after that, a matter of minutes, a soldier came to the gym and um, requested that I uh, get to the command post. My presence was um, required. On arrival at the command post, it became obvious very quickly that uh, one of our patrols was in contact with the Taliban and um, the firefight was ongoing. Communications was intermittent at that time and our satellite systems weren't working as effectively as we needed them to. So it took us it took us a little bit of time to both get good communications and to confirm the location of the patrol. And once we had done that, it became apparent that... Um, we had suffered casualties and uh, one of our patrol members had been killed. About 10 minutes later, it became known that that was Tim. What was the atmosphere like in the control room when you're dealing with the volatile developing situation and some of the technology not working in the way that you need it to? So we had rehearsed many times the processes that we'd go through should one of our patrols come into contact with the Taliban. When we did our handover with the previous PRT crew 15, a contact actually occurred during that handover. And whilst crew 15 managed all aspects of that contact, it was a great opportunity for our senior staff members to observe the processes associated with operating when one of your forces was in contact, the headquarters procedures in particular. It allowed them to better understand the resources that were available should we come into contact with the Taliban, the different assets that uh, the US in particular had available that we could call on. 
and the types of contingencies that you would require to put in place in the event of being involved in a contact with the enemy. So we'd rehearsed it. We'd actually uh, been alongside another force element whilst they had gone through the process. So we had pretty good procedures in place when this attack took place on the 3rd of August. The team kicked into action in a way that um, I would have expected them to and I was incredibly proud of. They uh, went through the procedures. They looked at the support that was available. They did everything they possibly could to enhance situational awareness when they were confronted with issues like communications or satellite challenges. They very quickly looked to workarounds. And uh, the answer to the satellite challenge was not to continue to try and get a fix on the location with the resources that we had inside the command post, but to um, park a vehicle alongside the command post that also had a system inside it and we could confirm it on that. So incredibly proud of the way that the team responded, not only to uh, the contact itself, but the curveballs that were thrown at them at the time. And going back to that moment, that initial moment when you did find out that it was Tim, what went through your mind? There was an instant, oh fuck, and then you move on because uh, the remainder of that patrol was still in contact. They were fighting for their lives. And uh, we had an absolute responsibility to do everything we could to ensure that, uh, you know, they were provided with every ounce of support that we could, that they had every opportunity for survival and that we were backing up behind them with all of the resources that we possibly could at that time. And that involved, you know, uh, what was available within the PRT in terms of the quick response force, what medical personnel we might need to get out on site, any other assets that might be required for battlefield clearance, um, IEDs and things like that. It also required us to get in contact with ISAF forces, the Americans in particular, ensure that they understood the circumstance, that they had as much situational awareness as we possibly could provide them, and that um, the resources that we might call on were either already in the air and on their way, and... um, Fortunately, fast air was, well, fighter jets were very quickly over the top, that the uh, helicopter evacuation processes were in place and that uh, the medical facilities at the receiving end were on standby ready to receive any of our casualties. So there was a range of immediate actions there that take place. It's all part of what we'd rehearsed. It's, um, and then just uh, adjusting your processes and procedures to the circumstances that you presented at the time. Yeah, and on the aftermath of that attack and dealing with that, that lasted some time. Obviously, the weather hampered efforts there to be able to support the patrol and the recovery. How did you deal with that level of uncertainty? So, you know, we were able to gradually improve communication, so we were able to get full situational awareness with the forces on the ground in a reasonably quick period of time. When it became apparent that um, they had been successful in extracting themselves from the ambush and that they were now secure, they still had three casualties that needed evacuation. Quite unbelievably for that day, which were in Bamian itself, the city of Bamian was a clear blue day. The mountains of Bamian were covered in um, cloud and we couldn't get helicopters through to evacuate the three casualties. So the decision was made to very quickly get the quick reaction force up there to support them with the security that they needed in that area, to follow that up with a uh, medical evacuation capability, and to as quickly as we could get the uh, the three wounded back to the base camp at Bamian. Later that, uh, that evening, it became apparent that it was incredibly complex on the ground, despite the fact that they were now out of contact. 
and in the wee hours of the of the next morning, um, I made the decision to go up there and take control of um, the battlefield clearance and recovery of the Kiwi Patrol on the ground, who had pulled back, uh, you know, some fifteen or twenty kilometres to a nearby town, leaving on site um, the vehicles that had been damaged in Tim. So we needed to go forward and, and recover those vehicles. We needed to go forward and recover Tim. We were going into an area where there was quite clearly a threat. I was going into an area of soldiers who had uh, just fought for their lives in conjunction with uh, the additional reinforcements that we got up there. And we needed to do a battlefield clearance and we needed to recover Tim. So that's the activities that really drove us the next day in terms of a immediate response. How do you steel yourself when you're going into a situation like that where a soldier has been killed, others have been wounded, and it's there's still a lot of risk? You know, I'll be quite honest, um, all of your thinking goes into what is the right thing to do, how do I make this as secure as I possibly can, what are the outcomes that I need to achieve, and how do I do that in a way that we can execute all those responsibilities in the most effective and safest possible manner. And um, there's absolutely no doubt about it, you know, there was a threat, a clear and present threat, but we had to get our mate back. Can you tell us about Tim? What was he like? He was a spectacular young man. He uh, comes from a quite magnificent family in fielding. I've maintained contact with his mum and dad since that deployment to Afghanistan, and they are very, very special people. He was a young officer who was full of energy, was full of mischief. He was incredibly brave, and uh, he had a level of professionalism to him that was the envy of his peers. A fine young man who had a, a hell of a future in front of him, um, and sadly, you know, it was it was taken away from him that day. I understand that he had been awarded the Distinguished Service Decoration after his actions as a platoon commander in Timor-Leste, and he was only mid-20s at the time. What was he like in terms of having him as part of that contingent and how his other soldiers bonded with him? Yeah. So, you know, the area that uh, he was operating from, we knew from the very start that that was the uh, the one area in the province of Bamiyan where there was a, a real threat. Tim was deliberately put up there in command because he was the best. We knew that he would um, ensure that his patrol conducted itself in a manner that uh, not only allowed them to achieve their mission, but to do so in the in the safest and most effective way. And he thrived on that. He wouldn't have wanted to have been anywhere else. And if I dared given him any of the other patrols to command, he would have argued from day one that my, outs- my answer was something different. He lived life at 100 miles an hour. He, he did everything at, at 100 miles an hour. And, you know, you sometimes struggle to keep up with him. He was a special guy. What impact did his death have on the rest of the contingent in Afghanistan? One of my most enduring memories of that time is how, in the most tragic of circumstances, those Kiwi soldiers, yes, they were, you know, they were suffering from the grief of having lost their boss. They had just been through the absolute trauma of of an attack on them by uh, the Taliban. But by jingos, they stood up to the mark and uh, they collected themselves and they got on with the mission that was required of them. Look, we went through a deliberate process with them. The vast majority of them, we we held back. We allowed them to to get their thoughts together and to rationalise what they'd been through. 
we had a reconstitution process we had to go through in terms of bringing additional people in, back into that patrol to bring it up to strength. Uh, you know, they'd suffered four people as casualties. Uh, we had to replace some vehicles, we had to replace some equipment, and we had to reinstall the confidence in them that uh, they were good enough and that they were going into an environment which they had as much control over as they possibly could and as safely as they possibly could. So we did that deliberately. There were a couple of members of the patrol that we just had to put the pressure on and we had to get out and do a couple of tasks for us and they did what was required of them as well. Incredibly fortunate at the time that uh, the liaison officer for that patrol was a very experienced warrant officer, class one, and um, he took on the leadership of that patrol. In fact, he's still the leader of that patrol today. They had a reunion a couple of years ago. And um, he was uh, superb at giving the soldiers the time that they needed, but at the same time ensuring that they understood what was required of them and getting them back in the game and uh, operating effectively as a patrol again. An outstanding performance uh, by that warrant officer. And he also received the Distinguished Service Decoration, and that was in recognition of his outstanding leadership at that time. For you personally, though, what impact of that unfortunate event, what did that have on you, and how do you think it's changed the way that you operate as a leader? I think of it often, that experience from Afghanistan. It reminds me of the absolute honour it is to command New Zealand soldiers be it on operations or here in New Zealand, and it doesn't matter if you're a, a corporal, a captain or a chief. It's, um, it's something that any of us in positions of leadership or positions of responsibility should absolutely treasure. The New Zealand soldier is a quite extraordinary individual, and um, all of us should be very, very proud of what they do and the manner with which they represent our nation. Because when they're put in extreme circumstances like they were the day that uh, Tim's patrol was attacked and, and then they lost their boss, they were superb, every single one of them. Yeah, four were recognised with um, either gallantry awards or the DST, but every single member of that patrol stepped up to the mark that day. And, you know, and they, that's indicative of, uh, of the quite outstanding people I had in the contingent I commanded in Afghanistan. It's Army, Navy and Air Force and indeed the, the civilian that we had, you know, stunning New Zealanders. The attack that day and the casualties that it resulted in, did that change any operational elements of the deployment and what happened from there on? Yeah, hugely. We knew that before we even arrived in Afghanistan that there was a, a threat in that area in the northeast, and that's you know where we focused the vast majority of our security efforts. One of our patrols during the handover with the preceding PRT crew 15, they were attacked. So we knew from the very beginning that there was a clear and present threat in our northeast that came out of the neighbouring province, Baglan. So we always conducted ourselves as though we were operating in a threat environment. We always reviewed the tactics, the techniques and the procedures that we employed to ensure that they remained fit for purpose. But when they attacked us that day and they had a major success by killing one of our patrol members and, and wounding three others, we knew that it was time to revisit and to adopt as stringent as we possibly could security measures. So, you know, we, we maximised the opportunity to move by night. We stayed in locations where we were doing humanitarian tasks and delivering aid for the shortest possible period. We you know, reviewed our routines to make sure there wasn't a routine 
and that we weren't signalling our intent on any occasion. We reinforced the forces in that area. We always ensured that uh, response forces were pre-positioned and available should they be needed. But the, you know, the challenge we had was that the area that we're talking about bordered Baglan province. The Taliban were active in Baglan and there was a number of routes that ran east-west into Bamiyan province from Bagland and that they had the ability to come into our province, attack us, and then to very quickly withdraw back to Bagland province. I had no mandate to go into Bagland. I had to rely on our coalition forces to have an effect on the enemy in that area. The challenge was that uh, the road, the main road north through Bamiyan province, and indeed was one of the main routes for the country as a whole from Kabul to the north, ran immediately adjacent to the border with Baglan province. It was down in a valley, the Gandak Valley, and about 40 kilometres of it was in country that was uh, very easy to establish ambush and very easily to interdict forces that were travelling on the road. We could not not go along that road. So it was absolutely imperative that uh, somehow an effect was had on the enemy that was operating out of Baglan province. I made every approach that I could to the ISAF forces that operated in Baglan for them to undertake an operation in the area, uh, but they were occupied to the north where there was actually a full-on war being fought. And the number of insurgents that were potentially operating in Bamian from Baglan wasn't of a number where they could devote resources to um, having an effect on them. And it was at that time that I reached out to our SAS and did so requesting support because I wasn't able to have an impact in that area, but they were mandated to operate across the entire country. Now, they had to go through a due process, and I'm not going to go into the details of Opburnham, but they had to go through a due process whereby targets were identified, there was um, authorities provided, legal reviews undertaken, full approvals, and so on. And they did all of that. And then, you know, Operation Burnham took place about two to three weeks after Tim's death, and I knew that once that had gone in, and had an effect in that area on the insurgents that were operating there and, and had killed one of my patrol and wounded three others, that we were going to be safe. That for the rest of our tour, they wouldn't have the capacity to come and have another crack at us. And it was really two years later that they did have another significant attack on New Zealand forces. And, I, you know, that's a, that's a story for another day. Thankfully, fatalities are a rare occurrence for New Zealand Defence Force personnel serving overseas. Prior to Afghanistan, had you been involved in critical incidences of this nature or experienced a loss like this, or was it the first time you'd encountered something like that? Not deployed on operations, but in training accidents, yes. And how did that prepare you, if at all, for what you faced in Afghanistan? I don't think it ever prepares you. Um, I think it... Uh, there's a whole range of things that, that contribute to how effective or not you are as a leader. And um, collectively, they come together and they provide you with the capacity to respond how you do on the day. I think back to one incident that I was involved in uh, when a scorpion rolled over in the training area and we lost a soldier. And I do reflect on that day and how we responded to it and what we got right and what we got wrong. And I reflect on, on the time of Tim's death and what my actions were and 
and the decisions I made and, and what I got right, what I did in a timely manner, what I could have done earlier, and, and a couple of things I didn't do as well as I should have done. And, uh, you know, that self-critique is, is incredibly important and I help, and I guess in many ways it, uh, it helps prepare you for the next time you're confronted with a circumstance like that. So I guess just on that, do you feel that there's anything you and the contingent could have done differently to have avoided what had happened on that day? So we had had a number of reports about the threat in that area. So we knew about the threat. And a lot of those reports came to nothing. It was uh, unlucky that that patrol was in that place on that day and um, the death of Tim and the uh, casualties to our soldiers occurred. You remember, you know, they were doing a humanitarian assistance task. They were delivering Gabion baskets to a village who was trying to rebuild the banks of a river so that they could plant for the winter. There was nothing with that task that in any way indicated that uh, the Taliban were going to take advantage of them. It was just unforeseen circumstance and we had to respond accordingly and then, you know, subsequently the event, as I said, you know, adjust how we undertook our operations accordingly. You've mentioned how much you think about the loss of Tim. Mm. You've mentioned his family. How has the experience stayed with you in the years since you were in Afghanistan and what involvement have you had with his family in terms of yourself and them trying to process his loss? There was some significant contact uh, when we first got home. We uh, we were able to get the vast majority of the contingent to fielding. We were able to um, unveil his name on the war memorial in the centre of fielding and to um, spend time with his family. And um, subsequent to that, I have maintained periodic contact uh, throughout the years. We come across each other on different occasions. There's an award for Tim at Office Cadet School, the Tim O'Donnell Award around leadership. And Mark or Marianne's mum and dad or one of the other family members will present that award annually. So, you know, as I see them at that event, I've seen them at a number of reunions. And uh, in particular, we had a reunion infielding on the 10th anniversary of his death with uh, all of the patrol members uh, that he commanded in Afghanistan. And that was a very, very special occasion and um, a lot of laughs and in a few tears. It must have been an amazing atmosphere to be with that group of people again. Very special people. Military service obviously carries risk. Tim was the first of 10 New Zealand soldiers who died during our Defence Forces deployment to Afghanistan. In your view, what was it that they gave their lives for? I reflect on what we got right. I reflect on the on the successes we had, the differences we made. Yeah, Afghanistan is now lost, but we should never lose sight of the, the great work that our people did during our time in that country. All of the Kiwis, soldiers, sailors or airmen, who deployed to that country did everything that was asked of them. And they did it with empathy, and they did it with compassion, pride, professionalism. And when they were challenged, as Tim's patrol was challenged, they responded superbly. And all New Zealanders should take pride in that. And given the situation now where the Taliban is in power after the withdrawal of the last of the Allied forces from Afghanistan in 2021, there was a suggestion at that time that our Kiwi soldiers might have died in vain. What's your response to that? Oh, I, I repeat everything I've just said. We did everything that was asked 
of us, and we did it to an incredibly high standard. And the efforts that our people went to across uh, our three lines of efforts of, of governance, development, and security, and for the time that we were there, it gave the people of Bamian province hope. They hadn't had hope for a long time. What lasting contribution do you think that the Defence Force made to Afghanistan? Is it that hope? Yeah, I think it is. It's an absolute tragedy how it has played out in Afghanistan. We all hope that uh, one day the situation is rectified and that the people of that country have a future in a way that they just don't have at the moment. And if the people of Afghanistan who are there now are able to create a view of what that future looks like, a vision of the potential of that country and uh, the promise that it has, and if that vision is based on what they saw and experienced as a result of their interactions with our soldiers in Bamian province, then maybe, just maybe, we've helped that country get to where it needs to get to go to. John, thank you very, very much for your time today. We do really, really appreciate it. We'll end with one final reflection. Having experienced what you have, if you could go back in time and impart some advice or wisdom on your younger self before deploying to Afghanistan, what would that be? I don't know. That's a real tough one for me. I, you know, I look back and I, and I reflect. I reflect on a number of things. I, I reflect on you know just how good the New Zealand soldier is. I reflect on how good they are in good and bad circumstances. You know, when circumstances are tough and in, in the face of absolute adversity and tragedy, I think about uh, how much of an honour it is to command those soldiers being at peace here in New Zealand or, or on operations. And, you know, I would, I would just encourage myself to, to do everything that you can to ensure that you give them every opportunity, to not only to achieve the mission that they've been given, uh, but to do so in the, in the safest and most effective way that you possibly can. Casualties are incredibly sad byproduct of what we are required to do and the environment within which we are required to operate. You've got to prepare yourself for it and ensure that should those circumstances eventuate that you've, you've got the, uh, the strength and the capacity both professionally and personally to, to lead yourself and those people that you're responsible through it. Because I do reflect on how incredibly humbling it is to lead New Zealanders at any time, on how much personal satisfaction you get from seeing your team succeed and seeing them take pride in their achievements. And I do reflect on how tough and lonely leadership can be at times, uh, particularly in times of crisis and of tragedy. This podcast is a production of the New Zealand Defence Force Defence Public Affairs Team. We're your hosts, Alex Mason and Mitchell Alexander. We'd like to thank our guests for sharing their stories with us. If you need to talk to someone, you'll find details for support services in the show notes. We welcome your feedback on this podcast. Contact us via email, podcast at nzdf.mil.nz. Haere rā.